The Play Today Next Gen NFT collection is an Australian first. It's your chance to buy a digital collectible of one of golf's rising stars. 100% of all proceeds go directly to the player so you can help a young golfer chase their dream. Head to playtodaynft.com. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of The Thing About Golf, our ongoing quest here at Golf Australia magazine to uncover what it is that draws people to this most maddening of all the games. I'm Rod Murray and I'm joined on the line for the second consecutive episode by my extremely busy colleague, John Huggin. Huggy's been doing a lot of heavy lifting these past few weeks because there's been lots of big-time tournament golf played in his backyard. And Huggy, with all that content that you've generated, the time-sensitive nature of some of it in particular, our lucky listeners get back-to-back doses of you. Welcome. Looking forward to your chat today with Eddie Pepperell. You introduced him in the podcast as the most interesting man in golf. Is that overstating? It's pretty close, isn't it? He's up there. Well, uh, yeah, he's, he, he might be on the podium. Uh, it might be a struggle to call him the, the, the most interesting person in golf, but he's, uh, he's certainly interesting. Let's put it that way. He's a thinker, a deep thinker about topics and issues outside of golf, which is rare. We've had a lot of great golf thinkers on the show. Harrington was Mm. fabulous. Jose in the last episode was extremely popular. A lot of people really enjoyed that. I've had a lot of good feedback about that, and I hope you have too. A little bit like Mike Clayton in some ways, Greg Turner, he thinks about things deeply well away from golf Mm. as well, doesn't he, which is perhaps one of the things that separates him. Well, I'm I'm not sure that it does him the the you know 100 to his benefit. Um, this thinking too much business <laughs> is uh, it's not really what golfers should be doing. No, especially about non-golfing subjects. I mean, Eddie's career is a you know we first to acknowledge I think has been up and down and up and down. Um, we did this interview that we're about to listen to at the the Fairmont Hotel uh, just outside St Andrews. On the Monday afternoon before the the tournament, whose name escapes me, uh, all, all the European it's one of the kazoo events, events isn't it? Me at the moment, yeah, it's one of the kazoo events. It. Yeah, yeah, kazoo. I think that's the one. Yeah, um, and then he went on to finish second. Yeah, um, a few days later. So I did text him on the the Monday morning afterwards. I said, "Do, do, you, do you want to talk every Monday from now on?" But uh, he wasn't up for that, sadly. No, indeed. Uh, He's got lots of strong opinions as well, Huggy, and I think you pointed out to him quite early in the interview. He's he's done a lot of writing, a bit like Meg McLaren. They're the two players that spring mm. to my mind who write not just about golf. Lots of golfers write stuff about golf. Really quite personal and very revealing stuff. Takes a fair bit of courage to do that. What did he say about that? Well, yeah. I mean, I, as, as I put it to him that um, he lets us inside his head yeah. um, more than, than most golfers. And I'm not, I mean, I... You know, I'd be the first to say I don't agree with everything he's got to say about the political situation in the world. It doesn't the, sound the like economy you, and all the rest of it. Normally, you're so agreeable. Well, you know, <laughs> yeah, I, I didn't, but I'm not quite to that extent uh, during the interview. But, uh, but yeah, he, he just he, he thinks about stuff and he, and he and he lets it out. I mean, as a journalist, I mean, I'm not sure we can ask for any more than that. He's uh, he's a great listen. I enjoyed I enjoyed talking to him. I always do. Um, even when I don't agree with him, um, but yeah, he's uh, and he's good on his golf. I mean, the 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 ups and downs of his career uh, speak for themselves. But I I think uh, if he could ever get his head in the right place all the time, I think he he would do he would be a better player. I mean, he his technique he fights his driving. His driving is not very good relative to his competition, 
he uses a lot of two woods and three woods off the tee, but he's long enough to get away with that. And I mean, second place in that tournament um, was a step up from where he's been recently. Um, it's not; it wasn't the biggest event in the world. It was a pretty much a hate to use the word second rate, but it, it, it wasn't um, second tier. It wasn't the biggest like. event. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but definitely a step in the right direction for him, and he'll have kept his card on the bus. He, he finished in the top twenty again in Wales uh, just at the weekend there, so he's obviously heading in the right direction again, which is nice to see. Yeah, he, he strikes as the sort of player who will play well in runs. He did a couple of years ago, mm. he had a real run, a really strong run, got to the Players' Championship. He might have played the Masters even, uh, got himself that high. He feels like the sort of player who'll do that kind of thing. He's been off the boil for a long yeah. time, but you would expect that he'll be on the boil now. Yeah. Yeah, despite the but, I mean, it, drills. It, this how far he'd fallen this year was. I mean, was it two or three years ago he was third in the players, and I think the the week after the players this year he was playing in the something in Kenya and missing the cut. So that, that's a long way down, and he and he he wasn't he didn't have a full card this year either. He was he's been relying on you know invites and past champion exemptions and all that kind of stuff. But next year it'll be normal service resumed. I think might that have been the wake up call he needed. Well, possibly, but he's been there before. I mean, it's, it's not the first time he's lost his card. Um, he, he, I think he blew one out of bounds at the last hole in Portugal a few years ago to Ooh, I think I remember. miss out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, and was in tears afterwards and all this. But, but I don't think he was in tears this time round. But um, he, um, yeah, I mean, like I say, I mean, for somebody as good as he is to be losing the card, I mean, if you've got a full card at the start of a season, certainly in Europe, and you can play basically whatever you want. If you lose your card, you've yeah. played rubbish. Yeah, that's you really know, really, it's really difficult to do that if you're a good player. Yeah, uh, he is a bit more obsessed with golf than I thought he would be. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I think he, he disguises that by talking about other stuff. But yeah, I mean, his his golf is very important to him. Um, as is his dogs. I mean, he's big on the dog front. Um, if you follow him on social media, yeah, yeah. he's very funny on that. Um, he's not quite Andrew Cotter with the dogs, but he's <laughs> nobody is. Honey. He's nobody close. is. He's close. <laughs> he hasn't got the right <laughs> dog. Yeah, I mean, he, yeah, I mean, Eddie Eddie's just a good guy to yeah. sit down and talk to. He's interesting. He makes you think about things that you haven't thought about before. I mean, that's that's a good conversation. I think yeah. for a Scott to say that about a pom, it must be good. So let's get on with it and let the listeners have a listen. And thanks yeah. for joining us, Huggy. Okay, my pleasure. Okay, um, welcome to the latest edition of the Thing About Golf podcast. Uh, my guest this week is um, one of the most interesting people, I think uh, is the, the description that's always labelled on Eddie Pepperell. Eddie, welcome to the Thing About Golf. Um, I always start with the, the first question, it's always the same. What was the thing about golf for you? Oh, originally, um, I had no choice. I was only four, so uh, my dad... Uh, took me and my brother to the range and that was that um so obviously that's going back 26 27 years for me now so uh, i've not got many memories of my formative years i have to say but uh it was um <clears throat> you know fell in love with the game i did fall, fall in love pretty uh pretty young i was that in football and uh, i loved the kind of individual aspect of golf more than anything so um yeah that was it when did the bug really bite, though? I mean, you, as you say, people always start off, they're just kind of mucking about, but there's always a point where, right, you just, you know, you think, this is it for me, sort of thing. Yeah, I think probably, well, I mean, as young as, you know, from memory, 11 or 12, I was pretty good. I was a good kid. Yeah. So, um, <clears throat> you know, I played in loads of competitions at a young age and did well. So, uh, and, you know, you'd have to speak to my mum or dad about, you know, they would have observed when the bug kicked in, obviously, mm -hmm. but, 
you know, from the, some of the noises and the things they say, you know, I've had that kind of <clears throat> attitude of, yeah, you know, uh, not wanting to put clubs down, wanting to just go and do it all the time from right. a very young age. Yeah, so yeah. clearly it was in me. Yeah. At what point did you think, um, well, I'm really pretty good at this? Uh, well, maybe when I started beating my brother, um, <laughs> it was the only thing I ever beat him at and, uh, it did take me a while, but, um, and then when I started playing kind of national, regional and national competitions, you know, that I remember playing a tournament called the Wee Wonders up here in Scotland at mm, St. Andrews yeah. on the little Balgove course, actually, and beating Jonathan Bell, who was the kid at the time. And, um, I uh, beat him, just pipped him and won the Wee Wonders at 12. And that was a, that was a, I thought I was the kiddie at, at that point. Yeah. I mean, 12, I mean, well, what sort of handicap were you at that point? I think I got down to about five from memory, age 12, which, um, I don't know much about the modern handicap system, but I'm guessing that's plus five in this day and age. Yeah. Um, but no, I, I got down pretty low at the, the time and, uh, yeah. And then, and then I kind of, as I got a bit older, 13, 14, you know, I started winning more like Faldo series events and the Reed trophy, which was the national under 14 tournaments. So, um, yeah, I, I was, I still maintain that I was a better golfer at kind of 15, 16 than I am now, really. Oh, right. Well, <laughs> relatively speaking. Expand on that a little bit. <laughs> Certainly relatively speaking. At least that's funny the way you kind of imagine or think back. You know, uh, I seem pretty cool having the ball under great control at that age and being a good little chipper, a good putter. And the game was just simple. You know, you plot it down the fairway and right. you just hit plenty yeah, of greens. You're not and thinking technique at that point, really. No, I was, too much, no. Oh, it was the, the pre, um, pre-dark days. So, uh, yeah. But no, I, I loved the game and, um, I practiced hard. You know, it was one thing I always did. I loved being on my own. I loved just chipping and practicing and, uh, I'd spend all day doing it all summer holidays. You know, it was just, it was all I ever did. I, I was kind of that same child and uh, not to the same level of play, I don't think, but, um, you spend most of your time at the far end of a field with a bag of golf balls and a pile of balls and chipping around and whatever. Mm. You're missing out on things, especially as a teenager. I mean, there's a lot of things you give up to do that I mean were you aware of that at the time or did you not really bother it, it was one of those you know I, I just never knew what those alternative things were and I had no interest in them you know whether it be girls or going out with friends or anything you know I uh, um, I just never had any interest although I met Jen when I was 16 which you know I mean, I've been with her ever since so um, but other than that you know it, it was uh, yeah I had, I had no interest in anything other than my golf really John and um that's kind of how it's always been with me. There's golf, hat, you know, is me, you know, it's, um, it's kind of feels like half of, of me, you know, it's who you kind of identify as really. Well, you can have known as the golfer <clears throat> at school and things, were you? Absolutely. <clears throat> um, I was even bullied at times, you know, and, uh, yeah. yeah, cause it wasn't the coolest sport to play. No. Um, but, uh, yeah, no, I was the golfer. That was like, how everyone knew me. And, and, you know, even at a young age, you know, my school let me 15, 16, they let me drop three or four GCSEs to focus on, golf and they were very they were very good about things so um it was kind of once i reached 14 15 and i was traveling around the world at that point everyone just yeah that was kind of how they associated me you know just with golf yeah you, you, you i looked at your amateur record i mean you pretty much ticked all the usual boxes you, you wore all the usual blazers on the way up yeah. um <clears throat> what are your kind of memories of, of th- those you know team days if you like I look back on that kind of thing with great fondness. Yeah, the yeah. the further away I get from that, me too, especially the team aspect of it. You know, obviously professional golf, you just rarely play team stuff and uh, I'm not even sure the Majestics would make up for the team element that's lacking. But yeah. um, 
you know, it, for sure, it's the trips away, it's spending time with friends, having good fun and doing the things that kind of teenage boys, you know, naughty things that you do and, and just the mischievous elements to it all. Um, any, any examples? Oh, I've front? got a number. <coughs> I, I was kicked out, in fact, of the England squad for six months for one of my, uh, I did a prank phone call. I did this poor lad called Jake Shepherd, who was a good player, but not, you know, maybe he wasn't quite in the full team. And I uh, once was in a room with Tommy Fleetwood and Gary King and... I think Darren Rennick was the name of the other lad. And I um, pretended to be the chief selector at the time. It was called Anthony Abrahams was his name. Very posh, right. old English man. And I just called this lad Jacob, pretending to be Anthony, and kind of put on the accent as best I could. He fell for it. I told him that he was, he'd been selected to travel to South Africa for two weeks in January. And not only that, he was going to be the captain. And he was very excited. And uh, we, so cruel. I was so cruel. And we held it for 40 minutes and then... His dad managed to kind of, you know, he, he caught along with it the next day, called up, I got figured out, and uh, that was me That was me out the squad for a little while. So um, that was just one. That's kind of an appropriate punishment, I would say. I mean, it is cruel when you look back at it. My goodness. You know. Yeah, it's funny that I didn't feel like it was cruel at the time, but I suppose <laughs> now it is cruel, yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what teenagers do, though. It's, it's unthinking. I mean, it seemed like a good laugh, didn't it? You yeah, know, so. and it was, well, from my perspective anyway. Yeah, I think I've talked to you this, about this before. I always look back at your... Um, the England team that won the European Team Championship in 2010. Mm. I think there's five of the six of you went on to win on the what is now the DP World Tour, the European mm. Tour. I mean, what what are your memories of that? And I think you did you not beat was it David Lingworth? Yeah, that day in the final, the Swedish yeah, lad. I did. Um, we came back from I think two 0 down in the morning to win, if not every singles. I think we won almost every single match in the afternoon. Yeah, yeah. in Sweden, in the final it was brilliant. Um, Run me through the others who were in that team just for the record. Well, I think it was, it was the five you refer to would be Tommy, myself, Chris Paisley. Um, I suspect Tom Lewis would have been there. Yes. Yeah. And there will be one other who I am missing, which is bad. So am I now. I know Billy Hemstock was there. Who He's the one the that sixth. didn't win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Billy's a nice lad from down there. Devon. Um, but I can't remember the sixth, which is bad. Um, I should have written this down. Yeah. It's bad, bad reporting by me. So, <laughs> but no, you know, that was a great memory. Um, Another good memory I had, actually, we were talking about this the other night at dinner with my parents, was uh, I beat Matteo Manasero on the 20th hole one year in Slovenia in the European boys uh, in about the quarterfinals, and he, he threw his putter about 60 yards. He missed an eight-footer to extend the match. Right. Threw his putter about 50 yards back down the fairway, and Alberto Bonaggi, who was the coach of the team, you know, legend, he was there, and it was all a bit you know, massive commotion. And uh, But I had some great matches growing up with people like Matteo, David Lingmurth, Oscar Sharp, um, just some, you know, brilliant matches. And of course, match play back then, that's, yeah. that was it, wasn't it? You yeah. know, and, and it was very different, obviously, again, to what we see now as professionals. So, um, yeah, quite different, but, uh, a lot of fun memories. Yeah. I mean, what, um, <clears throat> at what point did you, I mean, obviously, inevitably you start comparing yourself when you're, you, the names you just mentioned, you know, Tom Lewis and Tommy Fleetwood and those guys are, you know, they've gone on to have decent careers, more than decent. Yeah. At what point, where, where are you vis-a-vis them at that point? And are you thinking, I can do this? Or is there any doubt creeping in? You know? Yeah, I mean, I, I never felt like I was the, um, I never felt like I was going to be the first guy to achieve mm-hmm. something better than I was achieving, you know, and I think Tommy Fleetwood and Tom were the two guys mm-hmm. who probably always did that. They were always at the forefront of the next step in terms of our generation. Um, and that, you know, that, I don't know why I felt that way. It was just kind of the way I felt at the time. So, um, 
And then when you start to see Tom, you know, who won out on tour, Tommy then break through, you know, obviously it did make me think and realize, well, if they do it, then of course you can do it, right? That's the natural way it works. So, um, but you, ne- but you never felt you were the best player on the team. I, mm. I kind of didn't, not mm. because I didn't feel like I had a lot of potential, just, I don't know. I just had so much, um, admiration for their games uh, and I felt that they both at the time especially hit the ball so much better than I did um that was my kind of association I suppose with what I thought you had to do to you know really make it out here on tour so uh those two guys had that in abundance whereas I didn't feel like I did I knew I had a strong mentality and a good short game and character but you know obviously you do need a bit of the full package to become a world-class player obviously so uh yeah um, but those two guys were always the two who I felt like I looked up to the most. Mm-hmm. Did you have a plan B at this point? I mean, were you one of those guys that, I mean, how were you at school and did, were you passing exams and things just in case or were you, what, where did you fit in that scheme of things? Yeah, I didn't have a plan B and I was always of the opinion, you know, don't have a plan B. Um, golf was, you know, there was never an option of failure for me. Right. Uh, and as I got a little older, I always, and as I began to reflect a bit more on the game and indeed mature a little bit more, you know, I was of the opinion that even if you did fail, even if I did fail at golf, um, I felt like I was carrying with me the kind of level of um, perspective and potentially intelligence whereby even if you did fail, opportunities would open up yeah. down the road anyway. And the lessons you learn along the way in golf are, I think, you know, they, they correlate nicely over to many aspects of life. So uh, it's a very challenging endeavour ultimately to succeed as a professional golfer and um there's no harm in coming up just short. You know, many people do, obviously, and they go on to have many you know, great careers in other uh, other industries, and including golf. But uh, no, there was never an op- another option for me, John. It was just yeah. golf. Yeah. You, your blog has always been, you know, certainly of interest to me. I mean, you've let, you've let us inside your head to an extent that uh, most people don't, certainly who write for a living. Um, I'm, I'm always writing about other people. I never let people see too much of what goes on inside my head. But... Um, You've done that. Um, at what point uh, w- were you like that as a teenager? Were you introspective, you know, kind of deep thinker? I mean, which is not necessarily the best thing for a golfer. And there's plenty of examples of guys who just free flow it, and you can get in your own way a little bit sometimes. Yeah, um, I don't honestly don't remember what I was like, you know, before kind of eighteen. But and it was that age where I started reading books. Uh, you know, I never even finished a book. I never got halfway through a book before the age of eighteen. And then first book I read was Lawrence Delalio's um autobiography. And I just remember it hitting a lot of He's the rugby English rugby player. Yeah. And, and at the time I was reading a lot of books from rugby players. You know, none of them were golfers. It was all rugby players or it was kind of Matthew Saeed. I think he wrote a book called Bounce back then, which, you know, obviously was. There's a common factor in all sports though, <clears throat> mentally, I think. Absolutely. Yeah. And it was, it was actually recognizing those similarities that kind of ignited a sense of, um, well, I don't know what, but, but certainly that I was related, you know, related in some way to them. And if they were successful, then I could be too. Um, Johnny Wilkinson as well, you know, he had some very insightful, you know, um, comments. He wrote a book with his coach called Steve Black, um, which was a great book from memory. And I just kind of dived in big time to some of these books and it clearly opened up a piece of my mind at the time. Um, like you say, it was much more introspective it, it, and it was a good period where I felt like I was uncovering many uh many thoughts some beliefs and uh and i felt like i needed an outlet to at least get them out of my brain and that's where the blog came in and um you know it was a big step for me at the time from memory i 
seems very cool. I might have been washing up some dishes at the golf club at Drayton Park. Where I used to do a few hours every fortnight. And I remember telling my dad, maybe all the chef that I was going to do it. And they were like, oh, you, you know, silly or probably took the piss out of me. Uh, yeah. Sorry, if we're not allowed to swear on this you, podcast. You can say that. This, they can say that all the time in Australia. Don't worry about it. Um, and I just took the plunge and did it. And, uh, yeah, it kind of evolved a little bit. And, and as time's gone on, you know, I've certainly written far less over the last few years simply because yeah. my thoughts have veered away almost entirely from the game of golf. And though, you know, I think a tremendous amount about lots of things, rarely is it actually about golf. Um, and so I just feel like there's no point me writing it because most people wouldn't want to wouldn't have no interest in what I think about, you know, the world outside of golf. Well, off the top of my head, I mean, you'd probably be accused of you having less credibility talking about whatever mm. than and certainly relative to golf. I mean, which is something that you're obviously very good at. So, yeah. yeah, there is that. And of course, you know, I, I witnessed some of that during the pandemic where I, you know, dived into COVID a bit. And, mm. uh, you know, listen, I, I don't think credibility should disqualify in terms of qualifications, shouldn't disqualify anyone from having an opinion because some judgments are actually very prescient over time, uh, even if they're qualified or not. You know, it's, um, there's some. I, I just meant you'd be accused of that. No, it, yeah. It, it, it didn't necessarily mean that you didn't have anything relevant to say. Yeah, no, okay. You're, you're yeah. right. But, uh, yeah. yeah it would. So what sort of subjects have you delved into? I mean, what, what occupies the, the mind of Eddie Pepperell when he's not on the golf course? There's really only ever been one thing that's yeah. kind of, it's not, it's not sex, is it? We can't go there. I'm so. afraid not. Um, <laughs> um, it's, and it's kind of been markets and, and economics, um, the wider world of macroeconomics, really. That's been the one thing that's persisted over time and probably now eight, nine years, um, which is quite unusual. You know, for me, I did have little bits of, you know, a few passions or interests over time, but they kind of, they went away as quickly as they came, but this one has certainly, you know, just stuck with me for a long, long time. So, um, and especially in the last year or two, it's grown much, um, stronger. Uh, so yeah, like us, you know, I'm thinking ahead a bit at the moment. I've been lately doing quite a lot of reflecting and obviously the live golf is, which we'll get onto has mm. furthered those reflections. And, uh, yeah, I am thinking about doing some additional stuff moving forward to kind of, I think, um, satisfy my, let's just say intellectual dissatisfaction with golf uh, as a, not because golf isn't interesting and it isn't a puzzle that I think is worth solving, but um, I just, my mind tends to spend most of its day thinking about other stuff. So um, yeah. can we see you running for political office at some point? I don't think so. You wouldn't um, be the first golfer. Peter Thompson did it back did in he? Australia. I yeah. didn't know that. Yeah. Um, I don't think so, but uh, I'm, 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 I'm certainly in the curiosity part at this point and uh, I, I'm not really interested in politics too much, but um yeah, you know. Well, economics runs into politics. Of course, yeah. of course. And that would be the, uh, you know, economics and understanding the business side of things more, you know, of how things work is something that I'm interested in moving forward. Yeah. And yet you didn't last too long on the tournament committee at the European tour. Um, run me, I mean, I remember talking to you when you did it and you were, you were very eager, it seemed to me at the time to delve into the, the inner workings of how things went on in the tour, but you didn't last very long. What was the, what was the story there? Uh, well, I mean, I was on there for about a year and a half. Mm -hmm. I did resign um, just because we, you know, the tour made the decision that um, to pay a few players quite a lot of money to turn up to play a Rolex series event just to keep the points going so they didn't get fined by Rolex uh, under the agreement. So I right. thought, well, that 
if we're at that point, that doesn't seem like a particularly sustainable policy. And I'm not, and, and I'm fundamentally against the tour paying players. You know, I've always been against that. I remember writing that in the blog, I think years and years ago. Oh, we can um, debate that in a minute. I've got views on that. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and, and it didn't come at the expense, you know, prize funds were then slashed across a couple of upcoming tournaments. And I figured, well, if a few guys are getting, say a million euros and we're getting that coming out of future prize funds that's not something that i think i stand for and and i've always believed that so it was just in me you know standing up for what i felt like i had the integrity to stand up for what i've always felt and um so it was was, a one issue thing you resigned on yeah it was it really was and um that was that so i said it in an email to the guys and i came off but I, i enjoyed my time you know i don't think we I think the players committee is an interesting place you know of late it would have been interest interesting certainly although you know, the majority of the big decisions clearly are not made on the players' yeah. committee. They're made at the Nor board should level. They be. <laughs> exactly. And, and I would entirely agree with that, especially yeah. when it comes to things like live. You know, you need, we elect an executive like Keith, you know, to come in and make those decisions. And we have to put our faith and judgment in that individual. Did you have to, you know, I sometimes smile when I hear about what the players moan and groan about. I mean, you're a privileged bunch. Yeah. And some of the things that you that seem to you know energize their negativity always just makes me laugh. I mean, was there some of that involved? Did you see some of that? Yeah, there was a lot of that. You know, yeah. courtesy cars or yeah. food not quite being up to scratch. And I'm totally on your page. You know, yeah. I thought these are all this is this is small fry yeah. in the grand scheme of things. Let's get the things that really matter um, right if we can. And uh, and also it opened my eyes to the challenges that the tour faces. You know, um, commercially, mm. it's just a very difficult. Um, I think it's been a very difficult time to raise yeah. investment, especially obviously we've had the pandemic and, you know, uh, and that's made it even harder. So, um, but no, I, I enjoyed my time and, uh, I, you know, I, I would consider maybe going back on it at some point down the road, but, um, I, I, it's not something I'm interested in doing at the moment. No. Mm-hmm. Uh, we need to talk a little bit about your, your form. Um, you, you've been up and down and down and up and, you know, all over the place in terms of, you know, quality of, your golf, um, you're cardless at the moment, technically. Is that fair to say? Is that how it works? Uh, I mean, it's a kind of grey area, isn't it? That sometimes, I mean, you, you were outside the top, whatever it is at the end of last year, but you've still, you're still getting plenty of starts. Yeah. So effectively, I've taken what would have been Q school. I right. think I would have taken number one card at Q school, right. effectively, okay. or right. number two. So yeah. that, that's, um, yeah, I suppose the category that, that I've, you know, I've gone into because of obviously we haven't had Q school again last mm-hmm. year. Um, but, uh, yeah, it has been a very odd few years. Uh, I think my form started going downhill in 2019, you know, as I reflect on it really from the midpoint of 2019, I didn't play that well. Mm-hmm. And, and yeah, you've just been third in the players championship. Yeah. I know. mean, I had some good results at the start of 2019, although yeah. I would say they were, those results kind of were probably made better by confidence and masked some underlying flaws. And um, they came to the fore, I think, more in the middle and to late part of 2019. And then obviously the pandemic came early 2020. So, yeah. you know, I, I think I entered the pandemic in a in a worsening place with my technique, certainly. Right. And then took six weeks off, didn't pick a club up. And next time I picked a club up, it, it was almost like looking at a different person, not only because was I swinging it worse, but I lost a lot of weight during the pandemic because I got a lot healthier and mm. took care of my health a lot more. Um, so it was uh, a very, as I look back now, you know, it was almost like it felt like starting again. And I had a, sh- I had a movement pattern that was very different to what I was used to. And I was hitting all kinds of bizarre shots from 2020 and uh, I would hit a shank a week. And I've almost have been up to this point of it a few this year. 
And that's what's characterized my game. I, I think, ironically, especially in the last 12 months or certainly the last nine months, you know, I, when I lost my card in 2016, I was completely lost off the tee. I couldn't hit a driver. But the last nine months, I've actually been quite good off the tee in play a lot. Um, so the game's not felt particularly stressful, but I've been really poor relative to my past and what you should be doing out here mm-hmm. from the fairway in and around the greens. Yeah. And obviously that's the difference. And so I, you know, I'm not, I feel more demoralized by some of the stuff I've been witnessing in my game as opposed to lost where I used to feel in mm-hmm. 2016. So it's just been a, and as you, and as I look at it on the camera and I, and I observe the differences between now and a few years ago, um, my game and my swing and my body positions have changed dramatically to the point where it's kind of been dealing with a whole new set of problems and um, I've had a very difficult time kind of figuring them out. I will say, I think I'm heading in the right direction now, but um, mm-hmm. it's, it's been a, yeah, a weird period. Yeah. I mean, I was, you know, back in the, the first card losing stage, I, I always thought that my, my image of you was uh, relative to your competition. You, you weren't a great driver, but you were a beautiful iron player and you reminded me a bit of Bernard Gallagher in that respect. He, he, back in the day, he was the same kind. His driving was really poor relative to his competition, but especially in, certainly inside 90 yards from the hole, he was just about the best in the world. Right. I'm not sure you were quite the same as that, but your iron play was what stood out for me. I mean, has that changed? Yeah, that has changed. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I wouldn't even say I tried to address my driving. You know, I wasn't a I mean, I wasn't a good driver, but I wasn't at the same time. I mean, I could get the ball in play. and I mean, I It's used, all relative, I know, but yeah. It's, yeah, and I, when I think back to even 2018, when obviously I had my best year, I mean, I used my three-wood a lot. Mm. So yeah. you know, even then, I, it wasn't like I was I was still winning tournaments, hitting driver maybe 20% of the time. Um, so you couldn't, you wouldn't characterize me as a great driver of the ball then. Having said that, you know, I, I wasn't terrible. So, um, but no, I've, I have gotten better off the tee i mean i haven't used a driver for over a year i've been using a mini driver mm. um and my stats have been had a couple of bad weeks at the start of this year but by and large i've been in the green off the tee which is unheard of for me you know when i go back to my best years i was always in the red off the tee and i was almost always in the red on the greens mm. but from the fairway and around the greens i was yeah usually often the best in the field mm. and and that's been a, just a complete 180 where I've, you know, my bad rounds this year have come where I've lost four approach play or three around the green. And, and that kind of stuff is a whole new. Well, that's very difficult to deal with. I would think in terms of just how you think. You yeah. Know. It's a nightmare, you know, yeah. because I mean, I will, you know, I've shanked a lot of bunker shots. So you, then you think, well, you're not feeling comfortable, comfortable in the bunkers. So then you're standing over the seven eye in the middle of the fairway, which should be a fairly easy shot, but you're kind of guiding away. So obviously the impact it has on psychology throughout the bag is, negative and um and yeah i've just developed a movement pattern that's been very very challenging to play good golf with an iron it's simple as that really you know yeah. uh, is it more difficult for somebody and i'm presuming here i think uh, that you're more of an artistic temperament than scientific approach to to the game i mean is it more difficult when, when something does go wrong to when you've got that you know how, how much do you delve into technique how much do you talk to a coach i mean because it's it's what came naturally has to be looked at. And that's always to me that would strike me as probably the most difficult aspect of it. Yeah. I mean, I've always tried to, I remember having a chat to Nick Doherty about this. And I mean, when I played some of my best golf, it was off the back of formulating drills, coming up with drills that would to the outside person look extremely complicated and Mm. technical. Mm. But all they ever were designed to do for me was to just create a movement pattern. Mm -hmm. So, 
when I used to then swing, I was just trying to create the feel or recreate the feel that the drill gave me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there was a lot of thought that went into the drill, but then it created a lot of feel. So then when I swung the club, people, I think, would have associated, looked at my swing and thought, oh, that's a natural swing. Yes. It plays with a lot of feel. But there was an incredible amount of thought that went into that. Right. But the, but the end product was feel. So mm-hmm. to me, you know, I, I remember talking to Nick Dirty about this because that is an important distinction to make because players who become paralyzed, they're, they're overthinking it. But I never used to overthink the golf shot, but I used to think to the, you know, there's a decimal point, they say, on the drill. You know, I could separate a drill into six pieces. Right. Indeed, the week before I won the British Master, I had a drill that I used to call the six-piece symphony to uh, my coach, Simon Shanks. Uh, one of the great names in one golf. One of the great names in golf. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, you know, symphony is a bit of a strong term used to describe a golf swing, but I mean, it was just, yeah. uh, that's what I did. Um, but, you know, I, I, I will get very technical on it. Um, and this is why I've kind of historically had confidence in myself to figure it out. Cause I do think I'm smart enough to, to see the patterns, to observe it and to ultimately correct it. But, uh, I'll say the last couple of years have probably been characterized by me experiencing a whole new pattern of movement, which I found difficult to understand and, mm deal with and also focus as well you know my focus hasn't been as strong on golf as it historically once was because of you know a number of things so i think those two things combined is what's made this particularly you know this particular period of my poor golf drawn out yeah yeah i mean so so where are we right now then i mean are you are you moving forward are you treading water i mean what what how do you see things right this minute um i don't know i'm i'm either sinking or i'm moving forward i don't think i'm treading more at this point um i think i think like i meant referred to a minute ago things are definitely on the up from my from a golf perspective i, I do feel like my swing's improving last week at you know obviously well what obviously we're now ahead of when we're recording no back, no but, you, can, you can say that and it's fine i mean we're we're sitting here at st andrews for the, the before yeah. the hero championship the week after two weeks after the open right so um you know i just played at hillside and had a decent week and, and showed some nice signs certainly with my iron play and my short game so um things i do think are looking up um with my game but then obviously there's a lot else going on in in the game of golf which mm. you know over time could have and over the near term let's say not even the long term we're talking now short to medium term could have a material impact on whether or not i do um continue to you know sink or or swim mm-hmm. where, where would you like to be at the end of this year i know you're not you, i've talked to you before but this you're not a goal guy or you've always claimed not <laughs> to be but there's got to be a target you've got to be thinking right i need to get this card back fully at the end of this year sort of thing yeah i mean i've yeah. That would be a natural thing to think, I would have thought. Well, maybe, yeah, but I've never been, well, I've always felt with me, whenever I've set a goal, I've always come up just short. So <laughs> right. I, if, I, if my goal is just to keep my card, I think I'll lose my card. Right. Yeah. Um, so for me. You're aiming higher. Yeah. Well, yeah, because I think my, A, I, I feel, I really believe in my talent and my ability. And I think if I, you know, if I keep on the train that I'm on at the moment and, and let it run, I think I can generate some great form in the next six months and that could mean me winning a tournament or even two um so you know all of the car talk will just take care of itself right yeah, that's yeah that's always the way I've you're, kind of- you're, that's interesting yeah I, I, and i was always accused of never aiming high enough and that's probably a perfect example of that right there yeah mm-hmm. yeah so uh i've always felt like and you know the the <clears throat> momentum you know is an interesting thing in sport you know obviously i've created a lot of momentum to the downside with my game and 
but but when I think back to 2018 and 2019, and again, if we go back to the, the comment I made earlier about the players, you know, I had so much upward momentum at that point that my confidence, that it was the momentum that was keeping the results up. It, mm-hmm. It's what you see in, I've often referred to markets, you know, sentiment, momentum, they count for, they can count for 20% of the upside and the downside. So they can, they can mask negatives and they can also mask, you know, the underlying fundamentals. And yeah. I think, you know, I, I rode that upswing nicely through the end of 2018, 2019. And I think probably the last few months, my game's actually been in quite a better place than where my results have been because there's been a negative, you know, momentum and sentiment right. internally. Yeah. that has been pulling my results down. I, I think that's now swinging a corner and I, I do think I'm back on the upswing. And mm, it sounds like a phase that you exactly right. Yeah. It's the cycle of just everything and everyone and you know, everything goes through cycles. So I think things are looking upwards for me. And then it's about you going to, I'm going to have to start creating my own momentum to the upside and, uh, and that'll, that'll then increase confidence. And, and then you begin to go to tournaments feeling 10% more relaxed, mm. a bit less stressed. Yeah. You let it happen. And yeah. that's just the way it goes. Well, you're just getting it? out your own way, really. Yeah, yeah exactly yeah. right. So, um, but you have to create the conditions to allow yourself to get out their own way. And I've, I've definitely done enough of that stuff. So, um, it's just a case of doing it now, playing. Have you talked to anybody mental side of it? No, I've never had any. I mean, I did when I was an amateur um, and a junior, but after that, no, I've never, I've never really gone there. Uh, you figured it out for yourself. So. Well, yeah, and no, I don't wish that to sound, you know, like I'm. No, that may be the best want- way for you. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think. Yeah, I think you know we all need help. Um, mm. I would have much greater concern for me if I was, um, if I was struggling away from the golf course psychologically and you know i know there are people who are and that would then be worrying me and mm. i would seek help on i would hope i would seek some help you know but that that's kind of outside of golf i think as it relates to golf you know i've always had i think a pretty good ability anyway to put it into its perspective um mm. you know it always sits below you know the wider world for me golf so. yeah i mean you, you haven't fallen into the classic trap of you know gauging your self-worth on your score or have you? No, I haven't. Mm. Having said that, it, golf does affect my mood. Um, mm. You know, it is a part of me. Um, but that's, I don't think, unnatural. You know, I wouldn't want to bifurcate myself from that because, you know, it's it, often sports people or anyone who's very successful in a particular field, you know, it's it's kind of who they are. I mean, they would have done it a long, long time. Yeah, and you'd be less than human if it didn't affect you a little bit. Exactly. At least, you know, right. Yeah. So I, and I often find when people try to artificially detach themselves, you know, it's pretty obvious what they're trying to do yeah. just to mm-hmm. comfort themselves. It doesn't ring true either. Exactly. Yeah. And yeah. you know, if you know me and mm. I know me, it's the one thing that matters to me is the truth. So I'm, and I'm unafraid of however low my mood could be because of my golf or equally high because of what I achieved. You know, that to me is, that is the, that's the deal you sign when you, you play professional golf, yeah. The Play Today Next Gen NFT Collection is an Australian golf first. Featuring Blake Windred, Grace Kim, Harrison Crow, and Kelsey Bennett, it's your chance to buy a digital collectible of one of golf's rising stars. 100% of all proceeds go directly to the player so you can help a young golfer chase their dream. Head to playtodaynft.com to find out more. Before we move on from that, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the Players' Championship that you did so well in. Um, was there ever a temptation at that point to, to look at America? I mean, you thought, well, I quite fancy this, and having done so well. I mean, that, that's the biggest tournament on that tour, and 
you were right there. And, and you hold that ridiculous putt on the 17th, which we need to talk about as well. Yeah, um, there wasn't really, John. I mean, I I couldn't wait to get home. Me and Jen have been in Florida for a few weeks. And listen, I, I, I admire America. I, I I like going there, but um, I wouldn't personally want to live there. Um, so... Yeah, and the travel was really taking its toll on my body at that point. You know, I, my back wasn't in a great spot anyway, and three or four transatlantic trips, and I felt yeah. terrible. So, um, no, it, America's not, never been a place I wanted to really play full time. And even after that good, good finish at the players, nothing really changed on that front. Mm. Um, but the part 17 was, was a good, a great memory. I mean, I mean, yeah, just for people that haven't seen it, it's, it's probably about what 50 feet long with about five breaks in it, you know, yeah. up and over the hill from the front of the green. You know? Yeah. The only good thing is I'd seen you, you've seen putts like that in the past, you know, kind of what it's going to do. The breaks are obvious. And I, I will say I went through a kind of two hour stretch period where I was just my short game and my putting my feel. I joked, I think I chipped in at least once. I hold a flop shot on one hole, mm. joked to my caddy and Justin Rose that I was like Sevy. You know, with his six-piece symphony, yeah. the listeners must be thinking, "Who is this guy you've got on, John?" Um, <laughs> but you know, I just stepped over that putt, and I had a—I just had such a good feel for the greens, the way it was all going, and uh, yeah, just knocked it up there, and it, it kind of went in. It was—it um, all seemed pretty easy at that point. Um, we need to talk about the the state of the game at the moment. Um, you know, this probably won't appear uh, for public consumption for a little while, but we can talk about the. The live golf saga, in kind of general terms, at least, uh, you've been quite outspoken on this, and I, and I, I know your, maybe your best friend, and certainly on tour, Laurie Cantor, has made the jump, and I spoke to him at Centurion at the first event, and I asked him about how it affected his relationship with you, and he and he didn't want to touch it, which is obviously fine. It's his business, your business as well, but it seemed to me that that it had an effect on. Your friendship is that fair to say, and in, in, in a negative way, obviously. Yeah, I think it has. I mean, yeah. you know, um, yeah, it has. Listen, I think there's no way of being around the bush. You know, I, I um, it's his career, and we all make our own career decisions, right? I fully mm. respect that, and yeah. um, you know, I, it's not a decision that I would have made. It's it's not something I would have done. But um, you know, that's not that that isn't. Yeah, I mean, there's not really a lot else to say on yeah, that. I mean, it's your business. Um, I mean, it's a touchy subject. This, I mean, yeah. say as much as you want to say, or as little as you want. I mean, it's it's a, as I say, it's your it's your own life that you're talking about. Yeah, and yeah. No, listen, I I think you know, there's not really a lot else to say on that. I, I mean, it's you know, I have an opinion on, and Laurie obviously falls into this group of players because, and there's a number of them, right? You know, and I've expressed opinions on it all, you know, on Twitter or whatnot, <clears throat> or interviews before. Um, about what I think their decisions mean, um, what, what it shows. And, and ultimately I think it's disappointing, you know, um, yeah, there are things that can be improved on both tours, but the way to improve them isn't to, I don't think go and play live golf. And, um, you know, I, I, I <laughs> Laurie doesn't fit into the group of players in my mind anyway, that have gone. That was the surprising element to me. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, were you surprised when he said he was doing it? Uh, well, yes and no. I mean, I, I was because it's not something that I would have thought any player in Norris' position, and there's a few that have gone, need to do. You know, they're on the up, they're very much on yeah. the upside. There's lots to look forward to. Um, I, you know, to me, I, I couldn't quite, um, fathom making that choice, but 
equally, I recognize that's a decision he can make and they can all make. Um, but, uh, I, you know, at the same time, I know he's part of a management group where they've all gone. Yeah. And this is something that, that is a feature of Live Golf. You know, you've got a, a, a quite a significant well, minority, really, who have come from a very small, well, two management companies. I mean, you know, I think there's an element of groupthink going on here. And ironically, the criticisms are all the same, whether it's of Keith Pelly or the, the tours. And I think, well, how original are those thoughts? You're all saying the same thing. I don't know why you're saying those things, especially as it relates to a couple, because a couple of the players have benefited enormously in different ways from the tours, whether it be through the pandemic or over the years. And I, and I don't respect that opinion. I don't respect their opinions of Keith or the tour. And, and um, yeah, I've, I've definitely lost respect personally for them all for going. But, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean a friendship has to be over as mm. it relates to Laurie or... Yeah. What not? But I, I do think, you know, they've probably lost as much respect for some of the things I've said as I've lost for the actions they've taken. That's the reality. Yeah, I, I think the agents thing is interesting. I mean, the, I was at the first, the event at Centurion uh, as a reporter, I hasten to add. We were paying our own way, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, as was the case when I went to Saudi Arabia in February. I mean, we, I think I was the only journalist there who did pay, you know, where the company I worked for paid for everything. But uh, it was very noticeable at Centurion that just about every agent I can think of was there, whether they had a player in the field or not. And maybe you can argue that's them doing their job because they have to look at all possibilities for their clients and et cetera. But it <laughs> made me laugh. I mean, they were all there, as I say, sniffing around. Mm. And I think their, the word insidious almost comes to mind, their influence on this, because there's a lot of money to be made for them, obviously, their percentage whatever it may be, is going to be significant yeah. given the numbers that we've seen bandied about. And, you know, it, it, ultimately I, I've lost a bit of respect. You, you said that, you used that phrase, I've lost a bit of respect for the people who have just, haven't just come out and said, I'm doing this for money. Mm. This is too much money for, for me to turn down and I'm going to do it. it. It's really that simple, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I yeah. think to a person there's yeah. nothing more to it than the money you know i i would have an i'd have an, i'd certainly be interested to hear the arguments beyond that um but um yeah i agree with you john there are ultimately a group of people involved here who are set to make a ton of money and i don't think actually have any care or regard for the game of golf on the whole no. so the question then is you know is this a good thing and and that's the question i keep asking myself Ultimately, the answer I keep coming up against is probably not on balance. And, um, you know, that's why I would personally, you know, I agree with the stance that both the European Tour or the DP World Tour and the PJ Tour have taken in coming together. I mean, and beyond that, you know, if, if I'm, a, if I'm, I'm going to use the word custodian of the game or I'm in somewhat responsible for the future of the professional game, you know, these are, it's not just as simple as saying, well, we should just, you know, we have to cooperate and incorporate live golf. Because it doesn't seem apparent that they really want that anyway. You know, they want, they've got their own vision of what they want to achieve. PGA Tour have got their own vision, as is the DP World Tour. And it's very, I think when you lay, lay it all out, it's going to be, it's going to be impossible for three entities to coexist in a way that's going to serve the sponsors of each individual tour, you know, well. And, and the investment, guarantee investment, it's, it's, I just don't see yeah. how it's going to happen. And yeah. I mean, it's my kind of hope that the, it'll all, work out in the end because they're going to have to start talking at some point. I mean, and I've, I've likened this in a column uh, that I've written to, to, to politics with Northern Ireland. Mm. Ultimately, the, the, the unionists and Sinn Féin had to sit down at the same table and talk and they both had to make big compromises 
to come out of it, you know, to get to create peace in that lovely part of the world. You know, that that to me is, is inevitably what's going to have to happen here too. I mean, it can't just go on and on and on and the game just explo- implodes, you know, because that's not good for anybody. No, no, it isn't good for anybody. And listen, I don't know what's going to happen and maybe well, that well, may well be I, the outcome. But that's my hope. Yeah. That that would, you know. Yeah, I, yeah. I, yeah, I suppose mine too. I mean, it's, it'd just be interesting to see, you know, I, I don't think, I think Liv Golf are trying to, like Keith said in, you know, his chat in Ireland to us all, you know, there, it's not like there wasn't offers on the table. You know, they were offered to be part of the ecosystem that is professional golf, right? But that is a, that is an ecosystem. And I think they want, you know, LiveGov wants to be something quite significant yeah. or very significant. Mm. And that's going to have negative ramifications on the current ecosystem. I don't think it's possible the pie can just grow. I don't think this is just going to continue to be an additional layer to the pie that is professional golf. I could be wrong on that front. And well, well I, I take the view on that. Uh, the, um, there are aspects of the, certainly the PGA Tour and the DP World Tour where it's a kind of tired product in many weeks. I mean, and, and you wonder how attractive that, you know, those tumbleweed weeks, if you can call them that, were, were going to be to sponsors going forward. So I, I think there is room if you, if you wanted to kill off a lot of the, you know, certainly use the PGA Tour as the example, kill off the, the fall season part of the year where the, the big names basically don't play. Hmm. And it's basically, they're feeding the, the rank and file. They're giving them opportunities to play, which is, is part of being the tour, but there, there it was too much of that. There was too many weeks where I wasn't interested. And no, maybe and, you were the same. Yeah, and, and listen, this is where yeah. the wider discussion can be had. You know, mm-hmm. listen, golf, like any society, it's about weighing up the product versus the distribution of something. And ultimately, we're talking about the distribution of wealth here. Now, I've always made the argument golf is a unique, does a uniquely good job, certainly from an individual sports perspective, of distributing wealth quite broadly across a, a few mm-hmm. hundred players per year globally. Yeah. Compare that to tennis, it's, it's a very different... Um, problem that yeah. we're both facing now i think each every sport whether it's tennis golf or whatever it is we're all confronting the same problem and that is generally speaking overconsumption. so we all feel stale there's a there's a feeling amongst everyone <clears throat> and this could this relates to football too no sport is impervious to this at the moment but then obviously the question is how do we move forward how do we Im- improve that balance if you like and clearly there is a desire to improve the product of professional golf you know and that and that probably does look like a world tour or something more like that, yeah. right? The top guys coming together yeah. more frequently, but ultimately there will be the net effect of that. In my opinion, is that we will, you will shrink the pool of players that earn, let's just say that clear six figures a year, mm-hmm. right? Let's just say, I think that that pool of people will be shrunk. Now I'm not against that happening, but what I, I think what, what I would say is live golf goes too far in that direction in that there's 48 guys Deeply unmeritocratic. I don't know how we're going to recycle in and out of that. Now, of course, you could argue over time there'll be ways in and out of that. But I just go back to what happens, what we see in wider society where, you know, we know wealth doesn't generally distribute. It doesn't trickle down very well. So if you put all the money in the hands of the top 48, well, generally speaking, that's fine. You're going to, but you're going to want to get all the corporations are going to want to be involved with that product. So I think the net effect will just be that the hand, that the wealth gets distributed into the hands of fewer and fewer people. Mm -hmm. And, and I think it's going to go too far in the other direction. And I don't think that's actually what we need as a sport uh, or should want, you know, as a sport. So that's my personal opinion on it in a broader context. And that's why, you know, I, I'm one of the fundamental reasons why I was kind of, you know, spoken out against it. Um, 
doesn't mean to say I hate the concept or I don't think it's got some valuable ideas to. Of course I do. And, and I've spoken to a few players lately, senior players too. And I do think now the time has come for the DP World Tour to reduce its fields, to reduce the amount of events, to pay, pay players if they're missing a cut, mm-hmm. um, and to try and up the prize funds. And I think that's the, that is going to be an evolution if that if it happens will be a byproduct of live golf coming on the scene. That's a positive. It's going to be a positive thing for this tour. Um, but I do think that time has come where we need to do more of what you've just said and get rid of some of the events. Yeah. yeah I do think that the, there's inevitability to the, the, the franchise idea that the players are going to be actually contracted to each tour. You know, they're, they're going to be run the, like they do in other sports. Mm-hmm. You know, you're going to be you know, like formula one almost, you know, if you're, in Formula One, you know that everybody's going to be there, and that that's going to be the f- the future. You're going to have to be able to guarantee a certain number of big name players to go forward. They have to be contracted to do that. Yeah, you know? <clears throat> yeah, that could. Yeah, yeah I, again, I, that could well be the case. I I don't know, you know, but um, I know one thing's for sure that these players are not they're not more independent for going to live. They're less. They're far less independent. And yeah. you know, well, there's th- been some nonsense talked and that stuff. You know. you know, they are. I do think it's interesting to t- touch on. I think Saudi Arabia are going to be heavily involved in the next five years in the global economy, not just you know golf. We're mm. talking about. I mean, I noticed obviously they've bought Newcastle United. They've bought a major stake in Aston Martin. You know, they they are buying up assets globally um, because that's what they want to do. They've got a lot of capital to spend globally, and they're going to do it. I think they're going to do to the world what China did post two thousand and eight. Um, and China haven't got the capacity to do it now. Mm. The Middle East is going to con- is going to con- be an interesting battlefront, if you like, the next five years geopolitically. And I think Saudi Arabia is going to be a feature of the global economy, and this is just going to be part of it. And so they are buying up assets when they're buying up Phil Mickelson for two hundred million. Now I think they're overpaying on a grand scale, mm. but it doesn't matter what I think mm-hmm. because they've got the cash to do it, yeah. and they're going to do it. But ultimately, I think that's what they're seeing this as. They're seeing this as just one big asset. Um, they're throwing money around left, right, and center. And, you know, these, these golfers, they're not individual contractors at this point. They, you know, they are, they're effectively employees of, of the public investment fund of Saudi Arabia. Yeah. And they're going to be at their beck and call for, a, for as long as the contract they've signed. And so, you know, that's fine. But that basically means in two years time or next year, they're going to be playing 14 events plus the four majors. If they get in them, that's 18 events. Does anyone really think that they're then going to go and play? six events on each tour. And this is why I don't think it can coexist because yeah. the PGA Tour aren't going to be satisfied. Not as it stands, no. Not as it stands. <clears throat> so there's going to have, you know, compromises to your point are going to have to be made. Mm. I, I can't see Liv making them personally. Mm. So well, that, they might be in a position where they feel like they don't have to. Right. You know, and, that, and, and that might well be the case. So then the question is what's going to happen outside of that. And I think clearly, you know, what's going to happen is what is happening. And, mm. and that's the two other main tours coming together. The thing is, though, if, they, if you truly believe that, you know, the, stuff that Greg Norman comes out with about, you know, growing the game and all the rest of it, that they they should make compromises if that's what they truly believe, you know. Yeah, yeah. but I think we would probably both agree. Well, I'm not sure it's going to happen. No, yeah. no. And and, and their, their whole thing's going to have to evolve. I mean, it, it, competitive golf isn't supposed to be a democracy, far from it. Mm. But they've got the point now where your, your mate Laurie Cantor might be one of these, he might, if they keep signing people, he might just get eased out if they, if they stick to the 48-player field thing. <clears throat> he could be... Asian Tour might be where he has to play after that. Because, I mean, right now, if you look at the scores that the guys have been producing in these two or three events that they've had already, I mean, Graham McDowell and 
Phil Mickelson are the two that come immediately to mind. I mean, they've signed up guys, you know, the lower ranked guys uh, or lesser lesser names are they're getting to play instead of the guys who have been playing much better golf in the mm. two events they've had. Mm. You know, they're they're getting eased out. They're in fact maybe not even getting to play at all. But Phil Mickelson's still there, mm. and he's played rubbish so far. And as has Graham McDowell. I mean, they've been awful. But they're still they're still in the field. Whereas guys who there was a guy I think finished fifth in one event. And he's he's out. Right. So I mean that's that's not got a place in golf either. I don't think. No, well, yeah. it's an exhibition, isn't it? In yeah. almost every sense of the word. And mm. you know, I I struggle to see how it grows the game in in any positive way. You know, I I just don't see how it happens. But um, you know, mm. I don't know. I think they're trying to just come up with a whole new. They're trying to reshape you know the game of golf. And and again, it goes back to the point of. You know, is, is that actually what we need? Is that what the game of golf needs? Is this what we want? Do we want the professional game yeah. or a large majority of the professional game you know, owned by a sovereign wealth fund spearheaded by a guy who simply hates the PGA tour for whatever reason? Mm. Could be valid, could be non valid. I haven't a clue. Yeah. And played by a group of guys where there's not a lot of recycling going on and it very feels very exhibition. I personally don't think that is a progression in any way, shape, or form. And of course, that's, you know, it wouldn't end up that way ultimately. But I don't know, John. I, I haven't got much positive to say about it, as you can probably tell. No, so um, that's all right. I mean, I, I think that Greg Norman is is part of the problem in the sense that, as you just touched on, he's got a real issue with the PGA Tour. It goes back, you know, many years now. And if I do think there's a, a real possibility, if it had been somebody else heading this thing up other than him. That Jay Monahan, Jay Monahan would have talked to this person mm. at the beginning of it and maybe worked something out, whereas they just went, "Oh, Greg Norman, we're not even going to talk to him." But, but that, that was maybe I'm just speculating, but that to me sounds like a fairly likely scenario right at the beginning of this. Possibly, but then I, don't, I haven't heard anyone that reasonable support mm. it. You know, and that's the point I would make. You know, who, who's actually going to support these ideas? And no disrespect. Well, it's not about respect. Well, it might have been a different, they might have come at it with a different proposal. I don't know. You know they might have done, but I think, you know, you, if Jay Monaghan had said, well, okay, but what if we do this? Hmm. And they went away, well, maybe, maybe we should do that rather than what we've come, you know, who knows? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a fair point. Um, but you know, it goes to the point that, that this is an aggressive action that they're taking. And that's why I don't think there's going to be a lot of compromise on, on the live golf part or front. And so, you know, we, we have to confront that reality, I think. I do think if they <clears throat> see what you think of this, if they if they do sit down, <clears throat> which I do think is inevitable, um, one consequence of it might be that Monaghan, Pelly, and Norman are all out. That could be part of the deal that they're all gone. That we wipe the slate clean and off we go in a different direction. Well, interesting. I mean, would that so? Then would you have three different new people come in, or one yeah. person to oversee them? Well, whole? who knows? I mean, all, all of the above possibilities, yeah. Mm. Well, yeah. It's it, it just how, you know, you know more about, you've studied big business more than I have, but that seems to me that that's what happens, is that the guys at the top are the most vulnerable, almost. Well, yeah, I mean, if we're talking about, you know, like a merger and acquisition, then obviously you can, you yeah. can I could see that, right? Yeah. But I, I struggle to see how that's going to happen. Um, I, I do. I mean... You know, I have heard rumours of the PGL, which is another thing to throw into the mix. You know, yeah. I, I've, I have heard it from, you know, not the horse's mouth, but I, I've, I've heard it in person, you know, that there are still progressions, discussions happening on that front, mm. big involvement from, you know, big corporate interests, yeah. kind of private equity types. And so, you know, there's, there's a whole host of 
potential disruption even more in the pipeline. I mean, I, you wonder where it's going to stop. But um, yeah, I, 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 ultimately, I suppose I worry for the game because you know you have interests, let's say, who are interested in mostly one thing: profit. Uh, or in the case of maybe the Saudis, just becoming more involved in something that they have a small interest in, you know, and they think is going to globally, mm-hmm. um, you know, improve their whatever you want to call it. Um, but I don't think it's for the good of the game professionally, uh, you know, on the whole. And, and that's the thing that would concern me more than anything. Um, and ultimately, though, there are no, you know, it, it is fairly open and democratic in that anything can happen. You know, there, the, there are really no legal boundaries I'm aware of here that's stopping any of this happening. Mm-hmm. It's just... Um, it's where we go from here. And I struggle to, this is where I'm disappointed with some of the comments that some of the professionals have made as it relates to either tour, especially the PGA tour, where they're highly critical of it. And I think, well, you haven't done badly. You know, you've, you've done very, very well. And I hear, you know, them complaining about maybe not earning as much relative to other sports, but you can have a 25 year career in golf. You can't have a 25 year career in the NBA. Mm. So, you know, the earnings are all condensed in different ways and, you know, golfers are doing very, very well. So I, I struggle financially. So I, I just have a hard time putting it into perspective in my own mind and, and kind of coming on board with the opinions that, that the majority of them, frankly, have, have spoken, you know, as all said publicly. How do you see the role of the majors in all of this? <clears throat> well, I mean, they're going to be crucial. Um, the world rankings are going to be very interesting. I'm, I, I've spoken to a few people about it and it seems to me as though the world ranking points, even if they are offered, they're going to be offered in a limited way and they're not going to be in for a good while. So, you know, the world rankings are going to, of the players that have gone, they're all going to fall. Um, again, rumours that I kind of hear, the majors are fully supportive of both the DP World Tour and the PGA Tour. And I think that there is a bit of a coming together of, you know, these people and a bit like a, you know, tortoise kind of just going into its shell and just saying, well, this is a storm we might need to weather for a couple of years. We're going to come together. We think that we need to for the good of the game, quote unquote, and see what happens to live in two years. And I don't know. I'm not saying that's the right strategy, but I, I, I could probably, I probably would agree with that. Certainly as I sit here right now. Um, so maybe there is some of that going on, but then again, I don't, I say that as, you know, we're mid July and I, yeah, as of yet, as of yet, I still don't think a critical mass of people have gone across to live golf. So I think it's easy for me to say that. If yeah. we start talking, there is a tipping point with the world rankings, though, isn't there? There yeah. is a tipping point, and yeah. if we start seeing people like Cam Smith or Hideki or Cantley, who, and I'm just rumouring, they're mm-hmm. just rumoured names, right? Yeah. All of a sudden, then we are entering that very great point and potentially that tipping point where you go, okay, right now. But I don't think we're there yet, and because mm-hmm. um, the world rankings would inevitably reach the point where they just look a bit silly if they didn't you know, recognize what's going on. So Yeah. And I think also the reputation, you know, the rest, the reputational, I mean, the majority of guys who have gone, you know, they kind of fit into a box, right? They're towards the end of their careers. They've been great yeah. players. I listen, I respect them all as golfers. I love mm. their games and mm. admire them greatly, but they generally speaking do fit into, you know, a box apart from maybe two or three guys. And I think that's fine. I think a lot of people can see it for what it is at this point. But obviously, if we, we're talking, if, if like the names I just mentioned, if they start going across, then golf does have an issue because you're losing some of the, the current best players. And at the moment, I, other than Dustin and, and obviously Bryson, 
I think they're the only two current golfers who I think are really world class or able yeah. to compete regularly yeah. in majors. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, as we speak, I mean, Brooks. things might have changed by the time people hear this, but um, the European Ryder Cup team or the probable possible potential Ryder Cup team for next year is relatively unscathed at this point. I mean, Sergio and Casey maybe had one more in them, but the rest of them, they weren't going to be in the team next year, you know, that's gone so far. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, the Americans seem to be more harmed. You know, and they've got a bigger squad as well. Yeah, and then, of course, you think about the guys who have been doing well this year, you know, Zalatoris, Cameron Young. Mm. They are not short on world-class golfing talent, and uh, I still would fancy them ahead of us in Italy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, so, uh, <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think I agree with you on the playing front. And, and I know there's been some, you know, talk about friendships, there's been some definite dislocations of friendships, you know, at the high level in European golf as well. So uh, mm-hmm. that's going to have an impact on involvement and yeah. yeah, it's going to be interesting to see what happens on that front. Yeah, I mean, this, <clears throat> again, this might be old news by the time this thing comes out, but um, what was been the reaction on tour to the Henrik Stenson resignation, removal, whatever you want to call it? I think just one of huge disappointment, you know, that he would take the role knowing that he's going to sign with Liv. You know, everyone, he was one of the early names, you know, everyone kind of thought, yeah. well, he's going to live. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I was shocked when he took the captaincy because I figured, oh, well, maybe he isn't going to live. Maybe live is dead in the water, you know. And yeah. so to do what he's done, I just think is ultimately just really, really disappointing. And, and that's why, I mean, that's kind of why I singled him out on Twitter. I haven't personally responded to anyone mm. on Twitter about it all, but he, he, I did to him because not because he signed up with live, but because he's taken the captaincy and he's shown just, I think, a huge amount of disrespect for that, that role. <clears throat> and that is a crucial role from the European Tours perspective and you would think or hope anyway from any golfer's perspective you know there aren't many greater honours you can get so you know as I said it's not all that surprising because I think he does fit into the mould of guys that have gone across in that what matters more than anything is is this you know the the, um, the amount of zeros in the bank account and that's pretty much it so yeah, there's a terrible conspiracy theory of course that he took the job to up the money that make himself more valuable which I'll God, I hope that's not true. But it's, uh, you know, it, it certainly did make him more valuable to live. I mean, Henrik, Ryder Cup captain, was more valuable than just Henrik. Yeah. I, I've, I've spoken to, well, I know a Swedish player who thinks that is what he did. So, mm. you know, and he's not particularly, uh, conspiratorial or outspoken about anything. This lad I mm. spoke to about it or heard it, you know, kind of through someone from. But, um, yeah, I wouldn't be surprised, you know, because at the same time, this is the level we're on. Henrik and they all know who they're dealing with. So if you know you can negotiate an extra 20 million, you will, I think, explore, you know, some new depravity to get that because you know it's on offer. Mm. We're not dealing, we're not doing business. They're not doing business with, you know, people that play under the same rules or with the same cultural kind of boundaries that we do. This is the Saudi Arabians. And now that's not to be overly derogatory towards the Saudi Arabians, but... That's just what they're like. And, you know, this is the level we've, we're at with professional game of golf. And I don't think it's a level that I think something we should be celebrating, you know, and, um, Henrik and Phil, they all, they knew, knew the game they were playing. And of course they've done well out of it. You know, this is if Henrik was playing that game, right? They all know what they all knew what they were doing if they're doing that. And you can blame them, but it's, it's a bit like politics. It's a bit like Trump in politics. You, you just degrade the quality Mm. of, you know, whatever it is the, the conversation or where conversations happen and uh, that's where we're heading in, in the game of golf and that's unfortunate 
just to round this off and go off at a slight tangent, um, are you happy with the the DP World deal with the, the PGA Tour going forward? Is that good, bad, indifferent? Where do you stand on that? Well, I don't think they were left with any other option, really. I mean, it was all it was obviously that, or you know, go full on board with the live live golf. But uh, as you can tell from listening to me speak, that I think would have been a mistake. And yeah, and I think Keith was ultimately, you know, again back to what we said earlier, Keith as the CEO of the tour. You you know, he's he's employed to make that judgment call, and I agree with him that you know that ultimately confronted with those two options, you need to get closer with the PGA Tour. I think getting ten spots on on the you know, in, into America from next year onwards, I think is a, is a big deal. Um, if it were me personally now looking at it, you know, I would try if I could to make the events smaller, improve the prize funds, make fewer events, make the experience play on the European tour as good as I can. And offering those 10 spots to the PGA tour, I think offers enough for guys like Rafa Cabrera Matthias Schwab, Kirida Kafibarmrat, Guys who are very good players who have, who want to go clearly play in America, but maybe aren't, haven't got their PGA tour card yeah. to choose the European tour. Tom Lewis would be an option mm. rather than choosing the Corn Ferry tour. They come and play on the European tour again yeah. and, and they up our quality of fields. And I know the world rankings aren't going to be reflected because of the changes that are occurring, but there are still some very good, very good young players around the world who, you know, could come and they may be ranked 150th in the world, but if you saw them play, four days in a golf tournament, you know, they, they are impressive. Yeah. So like, you know, we, we do have the possibility, I still think to offer up a great product. I think we're going to have to make the changes to do so. And I think the 10 spots ultimately should hopefully aid that. I've had, just to be devil's advocate for a minute, I've talked to more than one um, sort of retired European tour player. Um, has said the same thing to me that they, they can't get their heads around this 10 spot thing because what, as one player said to me, what other business gives away its 10 best assets at the end of every year? Well, it, it, A, it's only given them the option. I mean, if it were me, for example, who got one of those 10, I wouldn't go and take the 10. I would still play full-time in Europe because I don't want to play full-time in America. Right. Um, so there's that. Um, but also, remember, there's going to be some there's going to be people that come off of the PGA Tour too. And, yeah, and so obviously... Right. They'll come back. Yeah, yeah you know, make there's, yeah. yeah, so there is a there's a kind of natural recycling going on. And, you know, if, if ultimately, if the overall pot is being improved by guys, if there's 30 guys that choose to play in Europe, yeah, we might lose our best 10, but we're still gaining a, a good mass of players who I think are probably better than what we've got currently on show. So, you know, I, I think, listen, there isn't a perfect world, right? There's no perfect, we've had to make compromises mm. and that's one of them. You know, you could see it that way or you could see it the way I'm, I suppose, trying to advertise it as a little bit more of, but um, yeah, these aren't perfect we don't have, we don't live in a perfect world now, you know, obviously in the golfing front and we're having to make decisions as a tour or well, the executive is that they feels best in our best interest. So, I mean, it's, you know, I, I kind of, I do support what they've done and uh, I, I, I think at least it guarantees, you know, for the foreseeable anyway, with the help of the PGA tour, some good investment. Right. Enough of that nonsense. <clears throat> Let's get to the important stuff. <clears throat> we're going to finish off this podcast by with a few minutes of talking about your dogs. They're far more important. They're fascinating beasts, obviously. You're, you're clearly besotted, um, just by the social media interaction you have with them. Uh, t talk to us a bit about your dogs, just to lighten the mood before we finish. Yeah. Um, well, a couple of pointers. One's Gus, he's a Vizsla. Yeah. And Pip is a pointer, German shorthead pointer. Yeah. So we, um, 
we got Gus in 2017. And as soon as we moved me and Jen to a house, we got Gus immediately. He's from Aberystwyth. I'm on a he's farm. Welsh. He's Welsh. They're both Welsh. He's right. uh, Pips from yeah. Merthyr Tydfil. So, um, do, they, do they have Welsh accents, dogs? Um, How does that work? I don't know. They're both yeah. pretty friendly. So right, that's okay. something that does well, run through well, the Welsh. Usually, good singers then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. We just, we, we've always loved dogs. We've always loved, I'm going to use the, the phrase proper dogs. Um, you know, that, that, uh, probably are too big to sit on your lap, but mm. I mean, you know, out on a the walk, they're great, especially Pip. I mean, Pip's got a real streak in her. Um, Gus is, you know, from a farm and he's, he was, he kind of grew up with the tennis ball. So he's happy just chasing after that and being pretty close to you. But Pip, um, on a walk, she's like a wild animal. So we've had some moments with her where, you know, she shocked me a bit, but mm-hmm. it's in her nature. And I, and I do love that. You know, I, I love watching a dog, um, behave like a dog really. And, uh, they're both, they're both great. So, um, yeah, I, I enjoy spending time with them, obviously when I'm home and miss them when I'm away a bit, but yeah. you know. And you've sold your apartment in Edinburgh, have you? I mean, I was very impressed when you moved, you know, you saw the light and were thinking of, you know, living in Scotland at least some of the year. I could live in Scotland full time, but it wouldn't probably work out at the moment. But um, we didn't sell it in the end. We're just renting it out now. So we we had it on the market for a while, but we didn't sell it. And um, I think think the market is, from what I'm hearing, slowed significantly up here and things are just harder to sell, especially flats. Mm. Um, But we're we're renting out and... um, yeah, I mean, it's a shame, but, you know, we, we're looking to move down south. So, you know, we kind of wanted to get some of the money out of it, but, um, we'll just rent it out for a while and leave it at that. And, and it also gives us the option to come up here a bit more as well, you know, so, um, and use it because we're not going to do a full time tenancy agreement with it. But, uh, yeah, we love Edinburgh. We love, I mean, we love Scotland, but especially Edinburgh. It's such a great city and, um, well, it's home of the hips, you know, the the top football team in Scotland, obviously, you know. Yeah, I can't say I know much about hips, hips yeah. and hearts. One's, they both Edinburgh? Hearts yeah, Edinburgh? Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, Goodness me. Yeah. You need some educating. No, I, I just like the food, the food in Edinburgh, the, the beaches, the food, and uh, a bit of golf, obviously. We've got some good friends up here. So, um, yeah, Scotland is uh, is just a beautiful country. Yeah. On that note, Eddie, thank you for your time. It's it's been a pleasure. I'm I'm now going to spend the next half an hour educating Eddie about the the football teams in Edinburgh. But uh, again, thanks for your time. No worries. Cheers, John. Cheers. He's an engaging chap, isn't he? And as noted in the interview, there, Eddie's game is coming back around, and that's a good thing for golf. And Eddie Pepperell in contention is an Eddie Pepperell we'd like to see. What's also good for and about golf is the lifelong nature of it. And on our next, we'll catch up with one of the game's most respected long-time coaches. Part of my teaching was very quickly to understand that you can't teach anything. You teach the one person who's standing in front of you at that time. You can't teach him what's written in a book or what everybody thinks is correct because the only thing that's correct is what works for you. That's the legend that is Alex Mercer next time on The Thing About Golf.